If you would, please open your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 6. It's uh, Matthew chapter 6. We will be reading verses 22 and 23 um, here in just a moment. Uh, we will also be spending uh, the bulk of the sermon today in Matthew's chapter 5 and 6. So uh, if you want to keep a, keep a marker there or a finger, that would be a good idea. So if you would, uh, before we read Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, please stand, as is our custom for the reading of God's Word. So in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, we read these somewhat enigmatic words. The eye is the lamp of the body. If then your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Please be seated. Holden, are we good? Okay. So while these two verses uh, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount um, are not the most difficult uh, verses to understand in that lengthy passage of Scripture, they are difficult nonetheless. We might ask the question, what does Jesus want me to do in these verses? Do I have any control over my eyesight? Is Jesus telling me that I need to eat my carrots and wear sunglasses when I'm outside? What is Jesus saying and what does he want from us? Well, I think that what Jesus wants from us is not so much to take care of our eyes, but to take care of what we look at. Though he would probably agree that if we have the opportunity, we should visit the eye doctor and do what, Jesus, or do what the doctor tells us, I believe that Jesus, what Jesus wants us to do here is really doesn't have to do with our eyes, but what we focus our eyes upon. Uh, let me illustrate this by way of a personal anecdote. I'm sorry if you feel like you've stumbled into uh, non-fictional story time with Uncle Dave. Uh, bear with me. There's a, there's a point that this story proves, and I think it's a biblical one, and we will get to the scriptures here in a moment. But I don't think I've shared this with uh, very many of you, uh, but in a previous life, I was a behind-the-wheel driver's ed instructor. Now, um, getting, in, getting, the behind the, getting in a car with a 15-year-old you don't know very well, um, who doesn't know how to drive, uh, may seem like a, a dangerous thing, but relax, it was fine, mostly. Uh, when we drove with our students, we did a number of things to make sure that we were safe and did this as safely as possible. One of those things was to follow seven set routes o over and over again. Having those set routes helped us to teach all the skills that a driver needed to, to have, but it also meant that we could anticipate the problems that the students might encounter. In fact, we kind of counted on those problems. So one of the routes that we drove was uh, involved crossing what the folks in the Lewis Clark Valley called uh, the Interstate Bridge. They also referred to it as the Blue Bridge, but they were wrong. There's only one Blue Bridge. Driving across the bridge was a challenge for a new driver because it was narrow, but it had four lanes. New drivers were worried about the heavy metal guardrail on their right and the cars and, let's be honest, mostly pickup trucks that were passing them on their left because they were driving too slowly. 
The new drivers had a tendency to lock their eyes on one hazard or the other, usually the guardrail on their right. And as you experienced drivers know, you tend to steer towards what you're focusing on. Disaster could ensue. The remedy was to teach the student a skill that we call targeting. We would teach the driver to select a target to their front and focus on that target across the bridge. Focusing on a target across the bridge meant that the driver steered towards that target and then would follow a straight line across the bridge in the middle of their narrow lane. And I would just tell you this method worked. I used this method for seven years with only one scrape on a passenger side rearview mirror. That was it. And I think that this principle is what Jesus had in mind when he said, if your eye is healthy, then your whole body will be healthy. The principle is not on the eye. The focus is not on the eye, but it is on the eye that is focused. And what is at stake here is not just a fender bender. What is at stake, as we read the passage, is total darkness. So this morning, I want to prove my point in three different ways. So first of all, we will look at the immediate context of the passage. Then we'll set it in the greater context uh, of the Sermon on the Mount. And we will spend a little time doing exposition of these, uh, of these two verses. I think you'll see that what is indeed in Jesus' mind is a question of what we are focused on and not on how we maintain our eyes. So let's look at the close context first. So Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. In the verses just above our passage, we read these words. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now I skipped some of the phrases for emphasis. Jesus' point is about our treasures, and it has to do with wisdom. Like children, we have a tendency to live in the here and now and to focus our attention on what we see, what we feel, and what we smell. We focus our attention on what's shiny or what appears largest and most important in our view. By focusing on what seems immediately important, we often miss those things that have real and lasting value. We forget that the things of this earth are temporary at best and not of lasting value. Jesus is essentially giving us investment advice, instructing us to store up lasting treasures, treasures that will survive both time and God's judgment. What we treasure, what we love, and what we love, we fix our eyes upon. In the Bible, the eye and the heart are often metaphors for the same thing. Our eyes are good, or healthy when we are looking at, fixing our attention on, those things that are true, lasting, and of eternal value. Our eyes are bad when we focus on things that are untrue, destined for destruction, and that work against our eternal souls. Let's look again at the immediate context, this time at the verse immediately following our passage today. In Matthew 6, 24, we read, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I think D.A. Carson is correct when he points out that the emphasis is in, in this verse is not necessarily on money, but on servitude. 
His point is that we cannot serve two masters, though we often try to. We might think that we can serve God and money, but ultimately one or the other will be in charge. And as we will see as we work through the greater context of this passage, money is just one example of serving the wrong master. Jesus' point is this. There are two masters, and there are two, tre- two types of treasures. A healthy eye is one that is focused on the right treasure and looks to the true master. And I think this will be borne out as we look at, as we put Matthew 6 in its greater context. So as I mentioned before, Matthew 6, verses 22 through 23, are sort of in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And if you've been a Christian for very long, you've probably come to both love the Sermon on the Mount and to be confused by it. Now, our topic this morning is not on how to interpret the Serpent on the Sermon on the Mount, and as soon as I get that figured out, I, I will definitely ask to preach that sermon, but it'll probably be in heaven. But one of the ways that we can help ourselves understand the Sermon on the Mount is to understand what the great theme of the Sermon on the Mount is. And that theme is, as Matthew refers to it, the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' sermon is a lesson on how to enter the kingdom of God, as well as how its citizens ought to behave. One of the other things that will help us to understand the Sermon on the Mount is to understand that much of what Jesus is doing is correcting error. He is establishing his authority as interpreter of the law, and so his teaching is antithetical, and provocative. His disciples, to clarify that, his disciples have been raised in a religious culture full of false teaching. He had to shock his disciples in order to break the hold of that teaching. So, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus comes into stark conflict with the religious leaders of his day. And I think it is helpful to our understanding of our passage to take a look at what Jesus has to say about the errors of the most influential religious leaders of the day, a group referred to as the scribes and the Pharisees. This is useful because we find in them perfect examples of eyes that are unhealthy and eyes that are focused on the wrong things. And these are errors that we have a tendency to share. So I think it's instructive. I want you to listen to Jesus' shocking words. Flip over to Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. I'm sure that some of you have struggled with this passage. Matthew 5, 20, we read these words. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now to be sure... In this passage, we can take for granted that Jesus knows about and is probably introducing in seed form our need for his righteousness. We need an alien righteousness. We need imputed righteousness. But I think he also has in mind actual righteousness. The citizens of the kingdom of God will have a righteousness that exceeds those of the people who in Jesus' day were viewed as the most righteous, most holy, and purest people of the day. You can see why his disciples' minds were blown. Jesus spends a good bit of the Sermon on the Mount addressing the errors of the scribes and the Pharisees, and it is instructive to us to see 
where these scribes and these Pharisees were fixing their gaze. What was the error of the Pharisees? Well, they were many, but here's, here are a few examples. In verses 21 and 22 of Matthew 5, we read, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders is liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Then in Matthew five twenty-seven through 28, we read, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks to a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus goes on to correct errors in teachings on divorce, oaths, vengeance, and how we ought to feel about and treat our neighbors. So one of the errors of the Pharisees is that they misinterpreted the law of God, which they claimed to uphold. Why? Well, their eyes were fixed on themselves and on their own righteousness. They were obsessed with the idea of their own righteousness, were convinced of it, and so... They had to misinterpret the law to excuse their own unlawful behavior. If you notice the pattern in the verses that we just read, the error of the Pharisees, one of the errors at least, seems to be to make the law easier to keep. It's just a matter of following 613 commandments. That's all. That may sound like a lot, but that's much easier than having a pure heart and a pure mind. The danger of this is evident. Since their eyes were fixed on themselves, they missed the truth of the law and their need for the Savior. But let's take a look at the next section in the Sermon on the Mount, starting in chapter 6. In chapter 6, Jesus begins a new section in that sermon that sheds further light on what the Pharisees were fixing their eyes upon, the result of their error of the law. Uh, see Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. In Matthew 6, 1, we read, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. One of the errors of the Pharisees was just this. They performed their religious acts, their righteousness, in order to be seen. They wanted people to think that they were righteous. Their treasure... What they were fixing their eyes on was their reputation with the people. This is why Jesus dismantles their religious practices. In verse 2 of chapter 6, he says, When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And the poor reward it is. In verse 5 of the same chapter, Jesus says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. He goes on to give a lengthy discourse on how to pray, in which we find that very familiar passage referred to as the Lord's Prayer. In verse 16 of chapter 6, he says, When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. What is Jesus' point? Well, it is after this discourse I'm not going on about our righteousness, doing our righteousness like the hypocrites that he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. 
What were the treasures on earth that the hypocrites were storing up? Well, surely money was involved. The Pharisees certainly saw wealth as evidence of God's approval of their behavior, but it is more than that. To most of the scribes and the Pharisees, it was kind of a package deal. Their reputation was tied to their power, and their power was tied to their money. That is what most of them loved, and that is where their eyes were fixed. So let's take a minute to think about the scribes and the Pharisees. First of all, as we do, let's acknowledge that what we say does not apply to all of the Pharisees. There were Pharisees genuinely motivated by a love for God and who received the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of them believed and went on to do great things in the church. Some of them believed and went on to great problem, cause great problems in the church. I think there's a lesson to be learned in that, but that's probably a topic for another day. And let's also add this. Thank God for the scribes and the Pharisees. God used them to preserve his word and his law. They kept the hope of the Messiah alive. They kept the true faith alive. They were used by God, often uh, in their sin. So, uh, as we learned in our lesson about providence today in our Sunday school class. But I think it's instructive for us to remember that the scribes and Pharisees were the religious conservatives of the day. Like us, they believed in the inerrancy and sufficiency of the scriptures. They believed that there was such a thing as sin. They believed in the need for personal holiness. They were zealous for God and looked forward to the establishment of his kingdom. They did so many things right, but yet as a movement, they went so wrong. Why did they do this? Well, there's a term, a, a military term that I believe applies, and that term is mission creep. I don't know if any of you have heard this before. Mission creep means that you start an operation or an offensive with one objective in mind, but as time, reality, and people interact, the original objective evolves and changes over time, often becoming something entirely different from the original objective. The Pharisees, and to be fair, just most of the Pharisees, were guilty of mission creep. Though they started out as a movement to bring people back to God and the Bible and to obedience to God's law, their focus became not God and his kingdom, but themselves, their ethnic and religious identity, their comforts, their wealth, and their personal reputations. Matthew 23 is a brutal indictment of these religious leaders. In Matthew 23, 6, and the following verses, we read, They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. Jesus goes on to express a series of woes, judgments on the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces and you do not go in yourselves. Jesus goes on to call them blind guides, whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are dead people's bones and all uncleanness. He calls them ser serpents and a brood of vipers. The errors of the scribes and the Pharisees were many, but it all began with the error of double vision. They failed to focus only on God and on his kingdom, they had attempted to serve two masters and had wound up choosing one, the wrong one. They wanted treasures on earth and treasures in heaven. 
but they came to despise the wrong master and focus on the wrong treasure. They became obsessed with a physical kingdom, and they thought that their eyes were full of light, but indeed their eyes, their eyes were full of darkness. Because of this, they missed the whole point of God's law and the prophets, both of which Jesus came to fulfill. They missed the kingdom of God, for which they thought that they longed for. They missed the kingdom even though it was standing right in front of them. They thought that they had the light, but what they had was only darkness. So you can see why Jesus said, if the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Well, having finished with the context, let's, let's come back to our passage to do a little exposition. Let's read once again Matthew 6, 22 through 23. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Jesus is speaking here in an extended metaphor. The eye is that which brings light into our bodies. By our eyes, we guide our bodies so that we can find our way. And our bodies represent our whole lives. It's a room, as, uh, in effect. Jesus says that our eye needs to be good or healthy, as the English Standard Version translate it, translates it. So what does that mean? And I think that we've kind of established the meaning through the context, but the language used here, I believe, bears this out. There are several different interpretations of the word healthy that we read here in the English Standard Version. The original Greek word in Greek literally means single. And this is why some of you older members of the congregation remember, may remember that the King James Version of the Bible, Bible translates the passage, if your eye is single. This is one of the meanings of the word used in the Bible that Jesus would have read, the Septuagint. But in the Septuagint, the word can also have another meaning, and that meaning is generous. It's likely that Jesus had both of these meanings in mind, the eye that is single and generous. A good eye is one that has a singularity of focus on what is spiritual and eternal and is also unconcerned about material things or generous, not obsessed with keeping material things to oneself, concerned about identity, reputation, or wealth, or anything else. But I'd like to point out that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is not directed at the scribes and the Pharisees, but directed at his disciples. He wants his disciples to be focused on the right treasure and to de desire to serve the right master. So let's take a few minutes to apply some of these principles. What can we learn from all this? Well, let's end this sermon by making six applications. First of all, I want to point out that having a good eye is serious business. Jesus says, if the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? If my students, as they drove across the interstate bridge from Clarkston, Washington, into Lewiston, Idaho, didn't pick the right target, the worst that could happen was, would have been a fender bender and maybe a trip to the hospital. But if we are not focused on the right thing, 
our whole lives can go wrong, indeed, even our whole eternity. There are some here who may not even be aware that there are two kingdoms. Be aware that there are. There is the kingdom of God, sometimes referred to as the kingdom of light, and there is the kingdom of darkness. Also, be aware that there are two masters. There is Jesus Christ who lived and died for sinners like you. He is the good master who has God's glory through your eternal good in mind. But there is also a false master who has your eternal destruction in mind. You may think that you have the light, but indeed have darkness. And Jesus says, if the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. And outer darkness, brothers and sisters, is another name for eternity in hell. So, application number one is this. Look to Jesus. Application number two. We just need to generally avoid the errors of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, I don't know if Martin Luther actually said this, but one of the quotes that's attributed to him is that there is a pope in the heart of every man. Now, I looked, I spent about 10 minutes Googling that quote, and I couldn't find any evidence that Martin Luther actually said that. But I do know this, and this is a quote from David Piper, I believe that there's a Pharisee in the heart of every man. Really, when it boils right down to it, what, what were the Pharisees focusing on? Wasn't it themselves wanting to be righteous in their own eyes? They became convinced of their own righteousness. Can't we talk ourselves into that? And so they had to interpret God's law incorrectly to support their own beliefs and their own righteousness. Convinced that their material blessings were evidence of God's approval and therefore their own righteousness, they became obsessed with earthly treasures, reputation, power, money. And they came to look down their noses at those who did not have their money, their power, their reputation, or their identity. As people who lived essentially in the material world, the Pharisees became obsessed with an earthly kingdom. They failed to see what Jesus had come to do, which is to establish a heavenly, permanent kingdom, one that will last forever and, not in, and include not just Jews, but also Samaritans and even Gentiles. It occurs to me that we too can do the same things. We can be focused on the blessings that righteousness brings. For example, when we have a biblical view of work, the pattern of work and reward for those labors will almost always be borne out. But it is easy to focus on those rewards and make them our goal. Which leads me to my third application. Application number three. Beware the dangers of mission creep. I think mission creep is a real thing in the church. Brothers and sisters, I think a lot of things can replace treasures in heaven and become our false masters. I worry that things like children, our country, a political movement, or a political issue can become what we fix our gaze upon. To be sure, biblical principles are at stake here, but I fear that, like Pharisees, the means often becomes the end to us. Even correct doctrinal practice or correct doctrine and biblical practice can become a false treasure to us. You may think I'm crazy, 
but I would direct your attention to God's word. Remember what Jesus said to the first Reformed Baptist church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. This church, the one in Ephesus, was obsessed with doing it right. They loved sound doctrine. They hated false teachers. They exposed false teachers. They endured hardship. They worked hard. But what did Jesus say? I'm going to read it to you. Revelation 2, 4 through 5. He says this to them. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. What have the church in Ephesus forgotten? Well, they had forgotten their first love. Love for God, love for God's people. They were victims of mission creep. The means to them had become the end. In seeking to be zealous for correct doctrine, correct doctrine had become their idol. My fourth application is this. Beware the master of money. Don't fix your eyes upon it. And let's be honest, this is probably the biggest thing that we have to worry about in the United States of America in 2023. I want to read to you from Haggai chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. Haggai 1, 3 through 4. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, meaning the temple, lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of the hosts, consider your ways. We also ought to avoid James's condemnation of the rich. In James 5, 3, he says, you have laid up treasure in the last days. Now, I recognize we have to strike a balance. God's word tells us that we need to have a balance. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 reads like this. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing a treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Brothers and sisters, we are wealthy. You may not feel wealthy, but compared to the rest of the world, we are rich. So this command is for us. Our jobs, our homes, our money are all good things. God has given them to us to richly enjoy, but they shouldn't become our idols, but should be regarded as opportunities. That's really what Jesus is addressing here, isn't it? Making an idol something we love, worship, or fix our eyes on something that is not God. And if we seek to serve two masters, God and money, remember we will come to love the one and despise the other. We ought to see our physical blessings as something to use and enjoy for the kingdom of God. We should see them as an opportunity to invest in what is blessed and eternal and lasting. My fifth application is just a question. What about worry? You might say, 
I am not one of those obsessed with wealth, and I believe you. you. Maybe you are free of the love of money and material goods, but let me ask you this. Are you full of anxiety? Do you worry? Maybe you don't need to be rich, but are you overcome with anxiety about material things? Jesus addresses this right in the context of our passage. And I'm going to read Matthew 6:24 again and then uh, trans- transition into the next few verses. In Matthew 6:24, we read this. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he, he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. But listen to what he says next. Therefore, I tell you, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, I know that there is much that should be said about worry. I know that there is such a thing as biblical anxiety. Paul talks about his anxiety for the churches. We are not to be cavalier about our lives. We do not want to put God to the test. If you do not have a job, you should be concerned enough about it to look for another job. When you do have a job, you need to worry in a godly way about providing a good service to your employer or your customers. But what is ungodly worry but the absence of belief in God and a failure to trust in his providence? Worry can be a sign that your master is indeed the material world and that your treasures are in the wrong place. The point is, don't make things, money, material goods, the main thing. So sixthly, what is the remedy? So what is the remedy for bad vision, for double vision, for the evil eye? Well, listen to Jesus. He says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Matthew 6.33 concludes the section on worry by, with these words. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Remember that there is indeed a kingdom of God, and make the kingdom of God your goal, your touchstone, your target. That will be a sure guide. And the target, and the target isn't the metaphor that Jesus uses here, is it? He wants us to focus on the right things. I'm convinced that that's what this passage means based on the context and the exposition of the passage. But his metaphor is not that the eye is a lens. What happens when you focus the lens of a camera? At least the cheap old ones. I'm not a photographer anyway. What would happen when you would focus a camera on something in the distance? Well, when you focus some, focused it on something in the distance, the things in the near and the foreground became blurry, Right? or vice versa. But that's not the metaphor that Jesus uses here. Jesus says the eye is the lamp of the body. It's a light, not a lens. It's as if our lives are a room in a house. And what happens when you flip on the light? Everything in the room becomes clear. Focusing on God, his kingdom, and eternity won't blur your view of the present world. It will indeed clarify it put it in perspective, and give you a sure guide. So let me end with this question. What are you looking at? Let's pray.
Our, heaven, our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning acknowledging to you that our hearts are virtual idol factories. Father, it is so easy for us to, to focus our eyes on things that are not you, that are not uh, your word, that are not your son. Father, we, we, we treasure things that we shouldn't treasure, and we serve things that we should not serve. We ask, Father, that you would help us to see clearly what is, of, what is of true, pure, and lasting value. And we ask that you help us to live in a way that's pleasing to you in all things. And Father, we pray that you would give us light and not darkness. We pray that if there are any in our midst that don't know you, that they would turn to your Son in repentance and faith and see the light in him. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.